We arrived on a sunny day at school. Much to our astonishment, the school was tagged with anti-war graffiti. The sprawling single-story brick building was now scarred by the red, black, and white spray paint the vandals had used to express their desire for peace. My school was Flint Southwestern High School in the south end of Flint, Michigan. The year was 1968. The comments painted on the building were about the police and a riot that had occurred earlier in the summer of 1968 at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Authorities called it a police riot. It made me feel sick for my beautiful new school. I was in 10th grade at the time. I couldn't understand why anyone would do such a thing. Tension built in the school over that year between the black kids and the white kids. Society was full of tension over the conduct of the Vietnam War in 1968. The assassinations of Martin Luther King and Senator Robert F. Kennedy, the Black Panthers, activist Eldridge Cleaver, and others were advocating black power. Southwestern High School seemed a model of racial integration efforts of the 1960s. It was a school that com combined the wealthiest residents of Flint, hillbillies, Jewish, middle-class blacks, and those from the projects and poorer neighborhoods. It was a melting pot of America. It was a potpourri of young people from all social and economic levels of society. Diverse was perhaps the word they would use today to describe it. Detroit, Michigan, just 70 miles down the road, went up in flames that summer. A large section of the city of Detroit was burned to the ground, requiring the authorities to mobilize the National Guard to quell the riot. The Detroit riots were the result of frustrations by blacks who felt America had let them down. Flint, Michigan never had a race riot in the summer of 1967, but tensions were high in the black community. The police had rounded up over a hundred young black youth, arresting them in a large group, and those people were about to burn down buildings in the north end of the city of Flint. That time, the first, the first black mayor of a major city in America, Floyd McCree, called together a meeting of city leaders, including Robert Leonard, the police chief of Flint, James Rutherford, and, and pastors. They went to the north end of Flint and convinced a large group of black youth not to protest violently, much the same as happened in the year 2020. Prosecutor Leonard then agreed that the police would release the young people who were, who were arrested on a condition that they go back to the community and uh, ask for peace. That was a truce. The police were furious. A good number of people in the community were upset. 
that these people, who had been lawfully arrested by the police, would be released. Eventually, the crowds had dispersed, and the prosecutor's quick actions saved the city of Flint from the same fate of Detroit and other large cities across the nation that suffered race riots and extensive property damage and loss of life. The whole vibe at school, Flint Southwestern High School, frankly was scary at that time. The combination of white redneck hillbillies and militant young black kids had a combustible possibility. It was late morning one day when chaos erupted in the school cafeteria and then spilled over into the main entrance hallway of Flint Southwestern High School. My friend and I were eating lunch in the cafeteria at the time. Kids were fighting, screaming, and running in all directions. It was a very confusing scene. It was at that moment I faced a choice. Stay at school and tough it out or run. I chose to run and left the school and walked across the street and watched as approximately a hundred City of Flint police officers in full riot gear entered the school. Then the ambulances came to take the injured away to the hospital. I learned later that a group of young black students began fighting with a, a group of young white kids in the entrance of the school that included a skinny, short, blonde white kid named Robert Karbowski, sending him to the hospital with a broken jaw. Robert's father was a city councilman for the Ninth Ward of Flint, which included a mostly white constituency. Robert's father raised Robert and his brother in Dixieland, my, my subdivision in the city of Flint, where I also lived. Robert lived in Dixieland, just a few blocks from my house. Like many kids in my neighborhood, he lacked much contact with black kids, and so his attitudes were not very enlightened. Today, Robert is what I would call a Trump nationalist. I certainly was not going to engage in fighting at the school for any reason. My mom was a fanatic about getting a good education. Fighting at school and getting kicked out was simply unthinkable. Black people had reasonable grievances at the time about policing and inclusion. I liked Martin Luther King Jr. and other black activists for their passion. I also agreed that the police needed to treat blacks with more respect. From my viewpoint, having blacks in my school was a good thing. They were great fun in my art classes, and I loved competing against them on the basketball court. My elementary, Freeman, Freeman Elementary School, named after a federal judge, had just two or three blacks attend. Southwestern had three to four hundred black students in all. At that time, my interests in school were art, printing, and sports. That is where I became friends with many black students. A school riot with over 2,000 students in a school building is enough to rock your world. Cops in riot gear lining the hallways with nightsticks in hand was unsettling. 
This was a place where we were supposed to learn and learn respect and learn to get along with others. I did not feel safe, no matter how many cops were there. The problems were deeper than, than a public safety issue. The transformational and confirming moment in this episode of my life was when I learned what had happened to set this school, so-called school race riot off. One of my best friends at church was a printer for the Hoofbeat, the school newspaper. He and I were both young printing students in, in Mr. Weirman's class. We were learning a trade at Flint Southwestern. Apparently, he defaced a picture of some black students scheduled for printing on the front page of the school newspaper. He made their eyes white by scratching off their eyes from the photo. He then ran the paper with the picture. The black student body was furious at such disrespect, and that was understandable. An investigation eventually revealed that it was my friend that did this dumb stuff. He was kicked out of school for the rest of the school year. My friends, parents, and others went immediately in their redneck mode, their white trash playbooks, and attacked the blacks for starting this riot. Everyone assumed that, that the school wanted to make the news with a black power bit that somebody at the school, so maybe even some black student, wanted to be like Stokely Carmichael or H. Rap Brown or Angela Davis with their fist high in the air. For them, the situation confirmed all their fears and prejudice against black people. But the fact of the matter was, it was a white kid who was the spark that lit the dry kindling of racial animosity that day at Flint Southwestern High School. I know my friend very well. He is not a racist person. He is, however, a prankster, and this one got way over his skis. He immediately apologized to the authorities for his stunt. He understood what he had done and, and that it was wrong and expressed remorse to his friends as well. His intention was not to create a race riot. People shape wor worldviews of life with filters and prejudice. This lesson in the 10th grade shaped my view of hate, prejudice, and perceptions of others different than myself. Because my travels have made me realize that every society in the world picked on its minorities. The lessons of the riot stuck with me and influenced my career. Eventually, I was appointed a hearing referee for the Michigan Civil Rights Department. I also was the first prosecutor in Michigan history to appoint a black woman as my chief assistant. Throughout my career in private practice, which extended over 25 years, I served people of all races and all circumstances where discrimination occurred. 
I brought cases and argued them and brought justice to their situations, whether it be sexual harassment. Uh, in some cases, I was successful. One case, I brought a, a lawsuit in federal court on behalf of uh, a group of black sheriff's deputies who had been fired after uh, an inmate had committed suicide. Not every case I was successful. However, every case that I brought eventually found a good result. America has a long ways to go to recognize the reasonable and legitimate grievances of black people in the United States of America. We've come a long ways since 1968. But when it comes to policing and law enforcement, we really haven't learned much at all as a country. For many years, I reviewed every single police brutality case, every allegation of police misconduct personally in the 1990s and a good part of the, of the next decade in 2000. During that period of time, I realized that the most important thing that those in law enforcement and prosecution can do is make sure that the cases are properly brought in order to send the loudest message. For too long, prosecutors have not taken their rightful role, their constitutional role, to be the, the protector between the thin blue line, the police, and those that they rule over, the people. When a prosecutor compromises that role, there is nobody to police the police. And that is precisely what's happened in America. There's obviously a reluctance to hold those accountable who have taken an oath to help other people. However, we know from human nature and what we see with our own eyes and hear with our own ears, not just on TV, but in real life, that there are those who abuse their authority and who are psychologically unable to accept uh, authority and can't work without being uh, supervised. When the supervisors of the supervisors are racist or have racial prejudice in their heart or animus towards one particular ethnic group, then how can you expect the person on the front line to begin to, to copy any other behavior? America is a big place. America is a place with, with a lot of possibility. But that possibility is diminished and diminished greatly when we allow employment, economic opportunity, social mobility, health care, and, and a gamut of other uh, things that we would measure a decent and just society by if we keep people from having that merely because of the color of their skin, their religion, or their sex. America can be a great country, but not until it takes a look at its policing models and does something about it. In Flint, Michigan, we've had a long tradition of community policing. We were one of the first cities in the country to develop a community policing model. The idea was to get cops out, walk around, get on a bicycle, get out of their cars, talk to the people. Today, the policing model is militaristic. 
So if the predominant policing and law enforcement model is going to be about the military, then you will have violence as a response in almost every case. Because violence, as Dr. King has taught us, and Gandhi also spent years of his life preaching nonviolence. But we cannot, you cannot break the cycle of violence by violence. In other words, an eye for an eye doesn't work. It only breeds resentment. Someday, somewhere, and someplace, we'll have leaders who have the wisdom to forge a new tomorrow for policing. It's been a long time since the American policing model has been reviewed. Our police model was never designed to have, uh, you know, the kinds of militaristic approaches that we see today. That not only makes America more dangerous, but it doesn't serve the people who need the most help. I've often been troubled by the uh, look of the police. Police officers wanna uh, make themselves military. There's a place for the military and there's a time for the military. The police are not the military. So away with the haircuts, away with the redneck stuff, away with the crazy, and punish those and make sure they know they can be punished for doing bad things. Because until that day when there's some deterrent that's established by a courageous prosecutor and a police chief who doesn't apologize for bad behavior and immoral behavior and criminal behavior, America will not find peace. That's my opinion. That's my experience. Please share yours. Thank you for listening. Thank you.